Hello and welcome to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve Caldwell here and we're so glad that you're here. We use our mojo to really become greater leaders. Now, let's get started by listening to something good. Oh, I feel good. If you're a leader with managers reporting to you, I want to ask you a few questions to ask yourself. Does your leadership team work seamlessly together? Are they focused and organized? Do they function well or fight each other? Do they communicate effectively or are they cloaked with confusion? Do they make decisions efficiently and effectively? Are they hiring, training, and keeping the best talent? If someone leaves, do you have an A player waiting on the bench? Well, if you can't answer yes to all of the above, then perhaps I can help you and your team. I help leadership teams work together harmoniously and achieve greater business results. If you want a, a free assessment and a discussion, just email me, steve at managermojo.com. Tell me you'd like to, to chat for a little bit and we'll schedule a call. Thank you, that's steve at managermojo.com. Hello and welcome everyone, Steve Caldwell with Manager Mojo and I am thrilled to introduce a special guest to you today. My special guest is author, speaker and viral marketing trailblazer Jonas Sachs. He is the author of Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. Uh, he's going to talk about how in work and life we face the constant pressure of rapid change. He's going to share what he found in his book to help us deal with all of this, especially from a management and leadership perspective. Jonah's work and opinions have been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, Fox News, Sundance Film Festival, NPR, and he pens a fast column, or column rather, for Fast Company, uh, which is named him one of the top 50 social innovators. So welcome, Jonah, to the Manager Mojo Show. Glad to have you today. Hey, it's great to be here. Well, I look forward to learning more about your thoughts on your book, but before we do that, why don't you share with our listeners what fun thing that you've been up to lately outside of work? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's fun and challenging what I've, what I've been up to. Uh, in my book, I talk a lot about how important it is to get outside of your area of expertise and do something you're awful at. Uh, so taking my own advice, I recently began taking singing lessons. And um, man, am I bad at that. But it has actually been creatively very generative for me and a lot of fun. So um, just trying to, trying to practice what I preach, and it, it sure isn't easy. Uh, Jonah, I can, uh, uh, all I can say is congratulations, my friend. Uh, the world is not ready for my singing, and uh, not even in private, I'm afraid. Uh, but I congratulate you for jumping out there and going after it. That's awesome. Well, maybe maybe we'll do a little duet by the end of the show. <laughs> if we do, you'll be the duo. <laughs> All right, uh, Jonah, uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you about unsafe thinking, 
the, the title itself is very, very interesting. And uh, I know that people are already curious, uh, okay, what in the world is unsafe thinking? Why don't you give us the platform a definition so we can start from there? Yeah, I mean, the idea is that in a world that's changing really rapidly, uh, a lot of the ways of thinking and behaving that are most comfortable, you know, falling back on old patterns, on lessons of the past, uh, taking the most obvious route forward, uh, copying the competition, all those things that kind of make us feel good and like we're making progress, uh, safe thinking, in other words, uh, tends to actually be extremely dangerous. And because if the world is changing around us, we've got to be changing with it just as quickly and really seeing um, change as an opportunity and not a threat, which is just not natural for the human brain. We love patterns. We love predictability. So the book is all about how do you step into that zone of, you know, intelligent risk and pushing yourself outside of your area of expertise and trying things that might seem crazy, but actually hold um, a tremendous amount of opportunity. And, and also, how do you create the kind of psychological safety to make that kind of risk taking possible? And so I just, you know, looked into all of that, partly because I reached a certain level of success in my career and then found that all the rules and predictability I was trying to create for my agency that I was running um, was really stifling our creativity. And, you know, just filling orders and, and doing what we always did well was um, no longer creating the sort of creative breakthroughs that we had in our early days. And so I just went out and talked to every innovator I could about, you know, how, when what you're doing is pretty good, but not great. How do you force change through yourself and your organization and the people that you lead? Well, Jonah, I think it's, uh, it, there's certainly uh, tremendous wisdom in what you write about in your book. And I think all of us uh, in, in business uh, struggle, I think, with when we have a profitable business model, uh, especially in the growth phase, uh, at some point you, it becomes necessary uh, for you to establish rules and processes and procedures and things so that you can scale your business. And uh, yeah. entrepreneurs are scared to death of doing those kind of things. And so they, they get into the safe thinking. I know you uh, shared in your book that you kind of experienced a little bit of that yourself. So why don't you share, you know, what really caused you to say, okay, I'm going to do this research. What, what caused you to want to understand what unsafe thinking really is? Sure. So like at 23 years old, I was one of those entrepreneurs who, who just was, Un unwilling to go into some big corporate structure. I hated rules. I just wanted some free floating creativity. So I did all these experiments in like 1999 with viral video just to see if I could get people to, to share wacky creative ideas uh, as an advertising method. It's from very earliest possible days of internet video. And those experimentations were so interesting and fun and, and I called the company Free Range to kind of even capture that spirit of just wide ranging creativity. Um, but as we gained some success, we were getting 20, 30 million views before YouTube existed, and people started coming to us saying, you know, how do you do it? I started making up my own rules and, and regulations, and this is how you do it. I even wrote a book about storytelling called Winning the Story Wars, which got me onto these stages to speak about, you know, how do you do storytelling right on the Internet? And I went from being that kind of explorer, that playful, uh, open-minded rebel, to being, you know, a true expert-minded person. And, and I found that that moment that I was always having, having more answers than questions. And when I would sell the ideas to clients, I'd go back to my agency and start telling the people in the agency, well, we better deliver in this, this, and this way because that's how we've always done it. That's what our clients are buying. And as we got more and more orders and the company grew, predictability became the most important thing for me because, you know, I'm trying to manage all this growth. And, and in doing so, I noticed that 
there was a lot less joy, a lot less fun, a lot less innovation. Sure, what we were doing was working, but um, I also saw that social media was changing so quickly that what worked yesterday wouldn't possibly work tomorrow. But we couldn't, we didn't have time to stop. We didn't have time to step back and, and try some experimentation. Um, we're just on that train, and I knew that train was eventually going to go over a cliff, even if it wasn't obvious to everybody else. And um, so I, I made endless attempts to change the company in small baby steps and found that I couldn't. And so I went out and I read the sciences and psychological and performance and creativity sciences, um, talked to innovators who I saw really had, you know, hit some lows and really bounced back and changed themselves, changed the organization, talked to an NBA coach, a Nobel Prize winning scientist, inventors, artists, and started to draw some, you know, principles for how even when, when, when you're on a path that seems to be in that growth phase, how you keep that open-mindedness so that you're, you know, you're really seeing two or three years down the road, not just to the next quarter. Well, I, I know I love the stories and I know you, you've done uh, great uh, interviews within the book. Uh, to, to continue along with your journey here, though, I, I, what I was struck by uh, was th- actually the middle of the book, the, the chapter on the explorer's edge. And, and you talk about being an explorer. Uh, I wonder if you would uh, really share with our, our listeners what, what this explorer mindset really looks like. Sure. So, you know, we face a conundrum as leaders uh, every single day, which is that to be someone who adds value in an organization as a leader, you need to be something of an expert. It's almost impossible to come into your field without knowing what's been tried before, what's failed, what works, and just as a beginner, change everything. So you need quite a bit of knowledge and know-how. The problem is that as you gain more knowledge and know-how, and especially as your ego attaches to what you know, you start to become blind and make you know, outrageous errors. So I looked at a study of you know, 200 experts making predictions over 20 years, or over 10,000 predictions. Turns out they were worse than dart-throwing monkeys at predicting the future. You know, how can that even be? That, you know, worse than random chance. And the experimenter said you know, that the analysis was that the more that they appeared on CNN and Fox, the more that they wrote op-eds for the New York Times, the more off they were as as experts and so there's something called entrenchment where you start to you you set up a kind of knowledge network and then every new thing you see just becomes kind of like a new flavor of an old problem and you're like ah no problem that's just that's just another you know kind of thing i know how to deal with that i know how to deal with that and your ego gets so invested in dealing with it in the same old way through your personal problem solving techniques that you miss that the world has changed around you completely so you know we can't kind of turn our backs on gaining knowledge, but as soon as we become experts, we become, we grow less, we become, um, you know, less nimble. So what do you do? You know, I really talk about this um, new kind of mindset, which is the, the explorer's mindset, meaning that you're, you're passionate about learning. You, you, you don't want to sort of close your eyes and just, you know, throw a dart. You want to learn as much as you can. But you recognize, as a good scientist would, that what we know right now is not the truth. It's just, you know, the best that we've got until the next thing comes along. And you, you hold an open mind to new information, um, and you're constantly updating, and you're not attaching your ego to any particular way of doing things. And I tell the story in a book of a guy named Vineet Nayar, um, who did this you know, hilariously and amazingly. He took over a 56,000-person company while it was facing um, some, you know, real challenges, an IT outsourcing company. And, you know, this is in India where, you know, you expect a CEO to be almost like a uh, emperor over the company who knows everything, the ultimate expert. And he knew he didn't have the answers when he took the company over. So the first thing he does is he gets up in front of 6,000 people, gets his PowerPoint presentation out. He's supposed to show the strategy. Instead of showing the strategy, he fires up some Bollywood music and he starts dancing. 
And just like I'm a terrible singer, he's a terrible dancer. <laughs> he's sweating. He's all off rhythm. And everyone starts to laugh at him. And then eventually they start dancing with him. And then he got up and he said, look, I, you know, I need your input. I need your help on this. And uh, he tripled revenues over a few years at that company, said the dance was really what started it all. And, you know, kind of obviously, I guess, he, he humbled himself so that people would be willing to talk to him. But less obviously, he sort of humiliated himself so that he would never have to enter a conversation pretending to be someone who he wasn't, or pretending to have more knowledge than he did. And that made him a really open-minded listener. And he found that all those things that as leaders of companies are often hidden from us. You know, when we really put ourselves on a pedestal, people don't talk to us, and we don't know what our employees really know. And so, you know, that kind of humility, I think, is just very, very powerful. Studies show that people who have lived abroad for six months or more, you know, tend to be more creative than people who never have because you're breaking up those knowledge networks. You're exploring where you become a beginner again. And uh, anything you can do to sort of divest from your sense of, you know, egoic attachment to what you know is really powerful for continuing to learn and grow. Well, uh, you know, the danger, I, I think, for all of us is that this thing we call ego, where we, you know, we, ha we achieve some modicum of success, we're in a responsible position, uh, people look up to you, and uh, at, at some point, people make the transition from really uh, just being honest about and say, look, I really have no freaking clue how to do this, but maybe we ought to look into yeah. it together. Uh, we yeah. go into this idea that, well, here's what I did before and here's what I did then. And the next thing you know, uh, what, what the employees have done is that they've said that in their brain, they heard you say, go do it this way. Right, right. And uh, you know, it's very called... frustrating. Oh, it? No, I was just going to say yeah, it's absolutely. very frustrating. Absolutely. And then you wonder why you have this like team of non-innovative, non-creative people who are just doing what you do, but a little bit worse. And, you know, you know, like where, you're like, where are all my leaders at? And that is uh, actually the, the, it's the product of something called shared information bias, which um, what you're describing, which is when a group of people get together, um, what they tend to do is focus on the relationships among them. And the thing that makes the relationship feel the best is essentially to all say the same thing. Um, so if, if you get together, you know, 10 people get together and maybe two people in that group know something that everybody needs to know, but it's not the leader, but it's, it's the reason for having the meeting. It's the surface, the new information, but the leader speaks first and says, you know, his or her point of view, everybody already knows that point of view, but actually in a psychological way, you actually gain amnesia. You forget that outlying information you wanted to share and your brain flips into just restating what the leader just said. And so when leaders speak first and when they constantly talk about what they know, your people actually forget the important and special information that they have that they could be sharing with you. It's why leaders so often say, why did no one tell me this, you know, after it's too late? Well, it's because they're so busy repeating what they know and, and, and rewarding people who repeat back to them what they just said, but they never hear the inconvenient information that actually would lead to innovation. So uh, leaders should actually let people speak uh, before they speak. They should speak last. And in fact, even letting people write down um, what they know before the meeting starts helps to fight that amnesia and recognize that the people with the least status in the group um, are the ones who most likely know something that nobody else knows. And so those are all ways of breaking through a little bit of that expert trap. Well, Jonah, I'm laughing because uh, the simple fact was I learned this the hard way myself. Uh, we're <laughs> in conducting meetings. Uh, I started doing the talking. Next thing I knew, I was the only one talking. 
and uh, it, it was yeah. like, uh, okay, I can talk to myself anytime. Uh, the question right. is, what do you know and what do you need to know? And I, I, yeah. I, I love your uh, recommendation about writing it down. Uh, I've, I've learned and I share with uh, clients today that uh, if you're going to have a meeting, you really should have written summaries from everybody before you go into that meeting with goals on them. Because mm-hmm. then they have to they have to share why they came up with what they came up with. And it's wonderful yeah. to hear people actually share what their thoughts were before they went in. It, it doesn't mean they're always on track, but it, it mm-hmm. sure as heck uh, gets everybody talking other than the leader. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's one piece, one thing that I found to be so um, fascinating, surprising, and, uh, and also just helpful on this journey that we're talking about right now, which is that um, some big studies have shown that people really feel more confident and um, prefer to follow humble leaders than they mm-hmm. do uh, feel safe with you know, self-aggrandizing leaders who seem to have all the answers. So if you are a leader and you're worried that somehow you're gonna tarnish your leadership brand um, by stepping back a little bit, by not having the answers, by asking more questions, uh, doing some of the stuff we're talking about, it's good to sort of know that when you ask people who their best leaders ever were, we'll often point to people who didn't try to pretend to be more knowledgeable than they were or didn't have to hold up that sort of leadership, um, you know, image all the time. No question about it. Uh, Jonah, I can uh, uh, give our listeners an example of a, I, I interviewed a gentleman that was uh, president and CEO of a, a, a very large bank, uh, over $6 billion in assets that uh, mm-hmm. grew, uh, when he started it, it was 13 employees, and when he left, over 6,000 employees. And th- the mm. thing that was so interesting uh, in talking to people that knew this gentleman, the comment that they made over and over again was that he was just like us. If he walked uh, in, th- in the bank or he walked in the parking lot and he saw trash in the parking lot, he'd pick it up and throw it away himself. He wouldn't go direct somebody to do mm-hmm. it. Uh, he was mm-hmm. human. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and this Absolutely. type of, uh, of leader uh, is very rare today because for some reason or another, we've, I think we've, uh, we, we kind of look at our experience and our intelligence and our savvy and we think that somehow means something to somebody else yeah definitely definitely well you know i I found something very surprising in doing the research for the book because the book is really all about how you get people to to push themselves into some counterintuitive thinking come up Mm -hmm. with some you know really wild ideas buck the trends of the industry and you know why some companies are so innovative and able to do that and others aren't and you know i'm thinking about unsafe 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 all the time and i start to pick up some information about how important it is for people to feel safe in order to get unsafe and i didn't really know what that meant uh, at first but i started to see a lot of evidence for that and it's a little bit along the lines of what you're talking about about this gentleman who would you know pick up the trash when when you feel like your boss is a human being and someone who you can connect with and who is uh, on your level in many ways don't feel that kind of pressure and fear of failure um, that locks up so many organizations. And, you know, I just found that um, this idea of psychological safety where everyone feels valued um, and in some ways equal within the organization as human beings allows for risk taking and for open creativity. And the story that kind of goes with that and really clued me into it was talking to Steve Kerr, the coach of the Golden State Warriors. And um, 
Steve told me this amazing story because I wanted to talk to him about how his team played such creative basketball and got such great, great results. Well, he told me his story right away, which was that he, um, <clears throat> as a young man in the NBA, felt he didn't belong there. For whatever reason, he felt like he wasn't good enough to be uh, in the NBA. And um, so he would always pass the ball. You know, he would have a chance to take a shot. He was actually one of the best three-point shooters ever to play basketball, but, but he always dished the ball to Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen, and that was kind of like a good idea because those guys were basically basketball gods, and no one <laughs> noticed that he was never shooting. Well, one day, Michael Jordan had the flu and, uh, in the NBA Finals, Game 6, and uh, so Steve had to take the shot, and he did. He hit it. He won the series, and um, he realized he never needed to feel that way again, or he shouldn't. So when he took over the team, his first priority was to make sure that no one on that team felt like they weren't a contributor and that they didn't belong there. And so he really focused on creating what he called the difference in the locker room and the arena. In the locker room, you know, everyone is really on an equal footing and everyone is valued as a human being. And they don't put pressure on the players because they know these young men are under so much pressure. And that allows them to go out into the arena and take risks and take chances. And, um, you know, I think a lot of companies that want more innovation need to sort of dial the pressure down in some ways and start rewarding things other than success, you know, re rewarding intelligent risk, good process, uh, rewarding teams, not individuals, um, rewarding good failures, all those things that make people feel safe uh, enough to try something a little bit different. Because a lot of times we're, we're yelling at our people to, to take more risks and they're just too afraid to, to make a mistake and then that doesn't happen. And so if you look at the Warriors and their success over the last four years, um, you know, he has really pointed to that. As, as kind of a key, and I think if, if they can do it, certainly we can too. Well, I, I think that's a great story and a great point. Uh, I, I know that a lot of uh, leaders really struggle with with risk, uh, risk taking, and uh, so they they stay in that safe zone. And in your book, you you talk about a character that uh, I, I think is really interesting. I, I wish you'd, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like for you to tell his story. Uh, I'm, I'm never sure how to pronounce it, but Antonis Makas, is that, is that pretty close to correct? Yeah, I think you pronounce that Mokas. Mokas? Well, Antonis tell us, Mokas. Tell us yeah. a little bit about this guy and what, he, uh, what made him really interesting to you. Yeah, so um, Mokas was this uh, kind of fascinating character who, uh, 1994, in Bogota, was a chancellor of a university, and uh, things in Bogota were really pretty rough at the time. Um, you know, drug wars going on. It's one of the most corrupt cities in the world, one of the most dangerous cities in the world. Everything's falling apart, and um, the politicians are, you know, taking bribes all the time, and the students at the university are getting really frustrated. Um, they feel like they have no future prospects, and they're starting to kind of gather and maybe to riot. And um, Mokis has got to go out there and, you know, talk to them, but he'd been formulating some ideas for quite a while. He's a mathematician and a philosopher, really interested in behavioral economics. And he thought that um, when you want to change people's behavior, uh, you can't just tell them what to do. You got to, what he said was, you know, re you know, write the beginning of a new story and then let them realize the story they're in is not the one they expected and then let them give them a chance to write a different ending. So he'd been thinking about this, but never really put it into practice. He gets out there, um, Students are yelling. He's got the microphone, but he knows that like we're on the edge of violence and uh, nothing he says is going to even be heard. So he steps up to the front of the stage, opens his belt, drops his pants and moons the crowd. And it wasn't just like a 15 second moon mooning. It was, all, you know, forever. It goes on and on. You can watch it. In, you can watch the video. It's pretty terrible. So, you know, 
the kids start, you know, freaking out and laughing and quieting down. And then they break up. You know, they actually leave. And um, so it actually broke up this riot. Now, Mokis uh, was promptly fired from his job. But, you know, within a couple of weeks, he's running for mayor. Uh, he wants to try this out on the scale of all of Bogota. And he wins the mayoral race by the largest uh, margin in history. Um, and he takes over. And he starts doing all these very counterintuitive but, but really intelligent things. So he, for instance, the traffic situation is terrible in Bogota, more pedestrian deaths than anywhere else because no one follows the traffic rules. And the traffic cops are so corrupt that all they do is sit around taking bribes and no one wants to listen to them. So he fires all the traffic cops and he replaces them with street mimes. And suddenly people are not having to follow the cops. They're being embarrassed by mimes who, you know, make fun of them when they break the rules. And this brings down traffic accidents and traffic deaths by two thirds. Um, so he, you know, he's doing this kind of taking on violence uh, through big public theater. He, he levies a voluntary tax where people can choose to give 10% extra of their income to help make the city a better place. Um, he gives drivers red and yellow cards, like in soccer, to sort of tell each other how they feel about each other's driving, which also greatly um, improves civic pride and the, the um, traffic situation. Uh, he goes on and on, helps save water. And by the time he's done, uh, Bogota is one of the most thriving cities in, in South America. And it's this sort of um, experimental mindset that he has, along with an idea about human behavior that's really different than most of us think of, where, you know, kind of coercion and traditional incentives. And um, that's not how the human mind actually works. And, and taking these unexplored paths, uh, but with some intelligent thinking behind them, coming up with counterintuitive solutions uh, is a lot what the book is really about and about how you see a problem from a different perspective and how obvious answers are able to come when you think a little bit like, like Mokis. I, I also yep. tell the story of Helena Folk uh, at CVS who, you know, wanted to get rid of tobacco sales at CVS, $2 billion business. And she just asked herself a really simple question. You know, can we make more money not selling tobacco? And she challenged herself with that and found out that she could. And because she was able to build better brand value and more partnerships, making $11 billion in the first year that they cut tobacco sales, she was able to put, push a really counter-conventional idea through a really um, conservative organization. And those are the kind of things that I, that I kind of lay out pathways for in the book is how you take those really crazy risks uh, that actually can pay off. Well, it's, it's very informative and very entertaining as well, and I highly recommend it. Uh, I know people are going to want to know more about uh, your work, John. Why don't you share with them how they can uh, connect with you? Uh, sure. Um, just at Jonah Sachs, J-O-N-A-H-S-A-C-H-S on Twitter or JonahSachs.com. And um, yeah, very eager. The book's only a couple months old, so very eager to hear from readers and from uh, the curious what they think. Awesome. And uh, for those of you that are exercising, as usual, we'll put a link uh, in this post to make it easy for you to go and check out Jonah's book. I highly recommend it. Uh, you'll learn and it'll challenge you to think differently. Now, we're all about action items here on Manager Mojo Jonah. And uh, one of the things I, I'd like for you, if you don't mind, share what do you think would be the, the first uh, step or the first couple of steps that you recommend for somebody that wants to try to be more nimble and bold and to really practice unsafe thinking as you teach in your book? What might those things be? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean there's just a few, I kind of, rattle off three quick ones maybe uh, one is to, to change your change your view of anxiety and fear you know just start to recognize and there's a lot of psychological science behind why this works which i won't get into but start to recognize that nothing creative has ever happened without uh 
that sense of fear and anxiety being stirred up in the team that's creating it and look for opportunities to move towards things that make you nervous as opposed to spending your whole day moving away from them. Um, so it's reframing anxiety as fuel for creativity. And that's one of the things we can do as leaders to really help get our people, people moving. Um, spending about 25% more time in the creative open mode, that is in the brainstorming or the um, uh, option-generating uh, option phase. So push yourself when you're kind of coming up with opportunities and ideas to, to exhaust yourself and then come up with another 25% more. There's something called blind variation selective retention, which, which is a theory that tells us that creative geniuses don't have better ideas, they just have more ideas. And so um, we, we tend to stop just before creative breakthrough happens. So more time in that open creative mode is, is extremely important. Um, and then finally, I would say, you know, spending time with people who don't agree with you. There's a lot of interesting science about how much we grow quickly when we um, bring a kind of our enemies into our circle of collaborators. So looking for your fiercest critics or your competitors or those people who don't share your worldview and trying to solve problems side by side with them and suddenly, you know, new opportunities will, will arise. I tell the story of a preacher in Boston who totally failed to solve the murder epidemic in his neighborhood when he was working with at-risk youth. And it wasn't until he started working with the murderers themselves that he figured out what was really going on and was able to bring murder rates down by two-thirds in his neighborhood and in all of Boston. And so, um, you know, just get, stop, stop, stop kind of hiring for cultural fit and just working with people who agree with you. And, you know, find yourself with people who make you uncomfortable just a little bit more. and You'll find more creative juice starting to flow. Those are all good, uh, good action items, Jonah, and thanks for sharing them today. Uh, our guest today has been author Jonah Sachs. He's the author of Unsafe Thinking, How to Be Nimble and Bold When You Need It Most. I highly recommend his book, and Jonah, thank you for sharing your wisdom and your research with us today. And uh, we at Manager Mojo uh, wish you continued success uh, in everything you do, and especially in your new book. Thank you so much. It's been a really wonderful conversation, and uh, maybe we should head out with a song. <laughs> you go for it. <laughs> go for it. This will be your debut performance. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, no, I'm okay. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. All right. All right. Yet, well, uh, all right. Well, thank you again, Jonah, and uh, we certainly appreciate it, and good luck again. Thanks so much. Uh, have a great day.